From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. All right, so we are in Genesis chapter 33. And uh, in Genesis chapter 33, uh, Jacob has been putting off the inevitable. Jacob left his brother Esau when he took the conniving little Jacob, uh, took Isaac's blessing. Isaac is his father. And Isaac gave Jacob this incredibly wonderful blessing. And the blessing that Isaac was giving was supposed to go to Esau, but Jacob snuck in there, got the blessing, and Esau was very, very, very angry, so angry that he told people he was going to kill his brother Jacob. So Jacob's mother uh, said, you need to leave. And so she, he left, went to stay with Uncle Laban, stayed with Uncle Laban for 20 years, 20 long years. And in that time, Jacob grew up. He learned a little bit more about himself, about what God's called him to be. He had children. He's got wives uh, that he earned from Uncle Laban through seven years of hard labor, each one. And now he's amassed a, a considerable amount of wealth. He's come into his own. And now he has to go back and face his brother. And this is a long time coming. And you can tell that he's pretty nervous about it. He was wrestling with God the night before. Uh, he's decided to, uh, to, he knows his brother Esau is coming to meet him. So he's divided his camp into two different camps. Uh, he's put a, he, he's put, he's given gifts to, to his brother Esau. I mean, he's done everything he possibly can to try to ma- mitigate the damage that he did 20 years ago. But you can t- still tell that he's pretty uh, upset and nervous and apprehensive and anxious. And he's like a guy the night before he's going to be hanged or the night before he's going to be guillotined. Uh, he's, he's not sure what the future is going to hold. Is the, is the, is the governor going to give a pardon? It's a good question. So we are going to pick up the story now in Genesis chapter 33. Jacob has already sent three companies of gifts. He's divided his troops but now he is ready to meet his brother Esau. He knows his brother Esau is coming with 400 men, and that's a lot of men, and uh, he doesn't know what's going to happen. So we'll just pick up the story uh, in Genesis chapter 33, beginning at verse 1. So Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and the children in front, and Leah and her children next, and then finally Rachel, his favorite, and Joseph in the rear. Now, I mean, at first glance, this seems like, what is it? You know, you're sacrificing your children first. But let's see what he says. Um, And then he himself, Jacob himself, went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So this seems a little bit over the top to me, but it shows you how much Jacob has been worried about this moment for 20 years. Oh my goodness. He puts the the women and children up front. He puts his men 
in the back. This shows kind of a subservience. If he wanted to fight Esau, what he would have done is he would have put the men, uh, he would have been first, and then he would put the men next, and then he put the women and the children at the very end. Uh, and that would have shown to Esau that he's ready to fight. If you want to fight this out, let's do it. Uh, we're going to have a lot of damage here, but I'm willing to fight you if it's going to come to a fight. But instead, Jacob leads first and then the women and children, a very subservient position of the people. Uh, and then the men are in the very, very back. And by this, Jacob is showing that uh, he's very subservient to Esau. And then he gets up close to Esau and he gets down on the ground and he bows down seven times as he approaches his brother. So he he comes, he sees his brother and the 400 men, he gets onto the ground and he bows before him and he gets up. He walks closer, he bows down before him. He gets up, does this seven times uh, to show his brother that he is in a very, very subservient position. He doesn't want to fight his brother. He wants to reconcile with his brother. Now, as you have to remember that his brother is the hunter-gatherer, right? Esau's favorite thing in the world was to take his bow and arrow and to go out into the wilderness and kill animals. He was very much an aggressor. He was very much... Uh, a manly man, I, I consider Esau to be like uh, Gaston in the, in the movie Beauty and the Beast. Uh, he's everybody's friend, but he, and he goes out. Uh, he's, he's burly, he's strong, he's virile, and he loves to hunt animals and, and pick up the game and chew them off with his teeth. And this is, this is Gaston, and this is also Esau. Not necessarily the brightest of all. Obviously, Jacob uh, is, is a lot sharper uh, in some areas, but Gaston is very sharp in uh, being out in the wilderness and killing animals and using his bare hands to get what he wants in life. And that's, that's Esau. Um, and Jacob remembers this and knows that his brother has to be coddled, maybe, uh, has to be shown deference, maybe. His pride was hurt. So he bows down seven times. And then what happens? Does does Jacob die? What does Esau do to Jacob? Well, let's find out. But Esau ran to meet Jacob, and he embraced him, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. He threw his arm around his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and the children who are these with you, he asked. And Jacob answered, these are the children of God has graciously, graciously given your servant. So, oh my goodness, this is um, probably not at all what Jacob had expected, but it is definitely the best outcome that it could have possibly happened. It appears that Esau is not at all upset. He's happy that Jacob has returned. And he's embraced Jacob and he throws his arms around his neck and he kisses him and they both weep. And then Esau looks up and sees the women and the children and says, what is this? Um, it is a story that's reminiscent of another story that Jesus told in the New Testament. And it's the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son asks his father for the inheritance and takes the inheritance and goes and blows the inheritance and he has nothing left in life and he has to come back 
and ask for his father's forgiveness and ask for his father's grace. And um, that was another similar situation where the son left uh, under not so very good circumstances. And the son goes and blows everything and then he has to go back to his father. And when his father sees him, uh, he runs up to the son and puts his arms around his neck and kisses him and weeps and uh, throws the coat around him and has the fatted calf slaughtered and throws a banquet for him and does everything he possibly can to show his son that he still loves him. And the same thing is true with Esau. Esau doesn't you know, slaughter the fatted calf, although maybe they would when they get back to town, uh, get back to the, the place where Esau dwells. Um, but the, the storyline is still there. There's grace and grace immeasurable. Uh, a lot of people wonder, because the Old Testament is filled with so much um, law, and there is a lot of law, in Genesis and Exodus, there isn't as much law, but in, uh, in you know Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and of course the judges, the time of the judges, the time of the kings, the time of the prophets, there's a lot of law. And so we think about all the law that happens in the Old Testament, but we forget that there's a lot of grace in the Old Testament too. That God, first and foremost, is a God of God of grace. God is a tremendous God of grace. Even when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he showed them grace. He gave them clothes. He, he was with them. Even though he wasn't with them face to face like he was in the garden, he was still there with them throughout all of humanity. And there are times in the Old Testament where grace just pours forth. And this is a place in the Old Testament where grace pours, pours forth. Because Esau had every right to still be angry. Uh, he could have destroyed Jacob. He could have taken the wives. He could have taken the livestock. He could have killed this other male servants or dominated them. But instead, uh, Esau, for whatever reason, has thrown his arms around his brother and kisses him and they weep together. Um, and it's a great, great story. I, it, is, it is a story of grace. And whenever you see stories of grace, uh, it should fill your heart with joy. Because grace is not an easy thing. Somebody has to pay the price for grace. Uh, for Christians, we know that Jesus pays the price for us. Uh, because somebody ultimately has to pay for, you know, the loss of honor, uh, the, the anger that gets subsided. Um, and in this case, uh, what is the price for grace? Is it that Esau basically has sucked it up? And over 20 years, the, the anger and animosity has gone away. Has he himself gotten stronger in his relationship with the creator of the universe and through that been able to forgive his brother, Jacob? Um, I don't know. I don't know where Esau found the grace and who paid the price for it. But I do know that Esau has found grace for his brother and his brother is has uh, found grace for Esau and they've reconciled and it is a wonderful thing. And this is a happy point in the whole story because Jacob and Esau, two brothers, two twin brothers, if you've been known anything about twins that grow up together, um, they're inseparable. They're, there's something special about twins that is different from any other relationship. 
if you've ever seen twins, there's just something about twin brothers that there's a special bond between them because they do everything together and then to have them separated and then come back together again. Uh, it truly is a remarkable, remarkable story and uh, makes me very filled with joy. Um, so, but Esau says, what, what, what are these, who are these children with you? And and Jacob says, well, these, they're the children that God has graciously given your servant. Again, he's calling him your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. And next Leah and her children came and bowed down. And last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. And Joseph is the youngest child at this point. Rachel is the favored wife, the one that he <laughs> spent his whole first seven years trying to get. And Esau asked, what is the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So it appears that in 20 years, Esau has learned to live without his brother Jacob. He's already come into his own. He's put off the anger um, and he's grown into his own man. And he's, his life is comfortable. He doesn't need anything else. He has grown also in this 20 years. So when Jacob goes to give him gifts, he says, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But there's something else here that's going on, and that is, in that culture, giving of gifts, you never gave gifts to your enemies. Uh, so if somebody gave you a gift or offered a gift and you accepted the gift, it meant that you're no longer enemies. If you offered a gift and the person refused the gift, that meant that you were enemies. So the giving of gifts had significance between peoples, tribes, governments. It's still true today. Uh, oftentimes our secretary of state or even our president will go, like president will go to meet the queen of England and bring with uh, him some gifts and if the Queen of England accepts those gifts, that in some way means that there's a partnership between those two nations. Uh, if you go to another nation and you give a gift and it's not accepted, then that brings significance If hey, there's still a lot of anger and animosity going here. I'm not going to accept your gift. Uh, and it's a, it's a pride thing. Uh, if our president currently were to go to, say, uh, North Korea or Iran or some of the places around the world where relations are very tense right now, China, um, and offer a gift, the question would be, would the leaders of those countries accept the gift? And what would that mean if they accepted a gift from the United States? Now, if, um, let's say, our current president were to go to North Korea and offer a gift, and then the North Korean leader accepted that gift and that was televised to the whole entire people, that would signify that at some level there is some sort of relationship or willing to be in a relationship uh, with the United States. But if a gift were offered and the hand were put up and said, no, no gifts, that would signify that we are not in a relationship, at least not one to accept gifts. But Esau, uh, Let's see what happens. I don't even know where we are here. <laughs> it's because I, I moved over to... Um, so yeah, we're going to go back and see what happens. 
Uh, Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So verse 10, no, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God or seeing the face of myself, right? If they're identical twins. Now that you've received me favorably, please accept the presence that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted the gifts. So it does sound as if all is well between Jacob and Esau. Uh, They've wept together. They've embraced each other. They've kissed each other. All is forgotten. 20 years has wiped away the memory of the anger. uh, And he offers a gift and then Esau accepts the gift. So it sounds like, it sounds like it appears as if everything is well in Tinseltown. And uh, so this is great news. This is awesome. It should fill you with joy. Two brothers have reconciled. The father and the son have reconciled. Reconciliation is always the greatest gift uh, in literature. Whenever two people have a misunderstanding and they're not reconciled and they come back together again, and they embrace each other and the reconciliation happens. It's just a great moment of joy. It's what every Hallmark movie is built on. It's what a lot of children's stories are built on. It's a lot of what fantasy fiction. A lot of stories are built upon this theme of reconciliation. Why? Because the human heart was made for reconciliation. And so whenever we hear stories of reconciliation, it draws us at a very, very deep level. And the same thing is true here with Jacob and Esau. Let's continue on. So then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. So the one thing is Jacob and Esau may have a different idea of what's going to happen next because Jacob wants to go reconcile with Esau. But is it going to be like it was as before? Are they going to be competing for who's in charge? Is, is the 20, I mean, now that they're reconciled and now they go back to the camp, Jacob's got all his stuff, Esau's got all his stuff. Together they can be a great nation, but they have to live together and they have to learn how to work it out together. <coughs> and can they work it out together? Is that the wise thing to do? And as I've said before, my, my brother is like Esau and I'm like Jacob. Uh, And so whenever I hear the story of Esau, I think in my head, whether or not it's right or wrong, whether or not it's a fair evaluation, I think of my brother Mike, um, who is like the the quintessential firstborn son, whose job is to keep the family together and to, you know, make sure that the relationships are held together of all the, you know, the sons and daughters of my father and all that sort of thing. And if I were to you know, be in this situation. I can see my brother coming out. Okay, let's go home. Let's throw a party and let's just live together in harmony Uh, to which Jacob might say, yeah, but there's this problem. And that is we both want to be in charge. And I don't know if we both can be in charge. Interesting. Well, let's keep reading. So let's be on our way. I'll accompany you. (coughs) Excuse me. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender. Uh, Excuse me for just a second. I got a cough. Okay, better. 
But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ooze and the cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Ser. And Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. And Jacob says, Why do that? Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So something's going on here. I don't know uh, if you're picking up on it, but Esau wants to say, okay, let's go. Let's quickly as possible. Let's get back to camp. And Jacob's like, no, let's not quickly go to camp. Let's, let me go at my pace with my tribe. I want to keep my women and children safe. I want to keep everybody safe. Go at my own pace. You go back and I'll come and meet you and Sarah. Um, and, and Esau is so excited. Let me have some men to help you and protect you and all that. You're out here. You know, I want to show you how much I, I love you. And I want to be, you know, the, the firstborn Gaston type of brother and give you protection. That's what, that's what Gaston brothers do. They protect everything. And Jacob's like, I don't really need protection. Um, just let me, let me come at my own pace. All right. So that day, Esau started on his way back to Seir. However, Jacob went to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. And that is why the place is called Sukkoth. And after Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within the site of the city. And for a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent, and there he set up an altar, and he called it El Elohe Israel. What is going on here? It is curious. Because back in uh, Genesis 31, the Lord came to him and said, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. The land of his father and relatives is not Canaan. Uh, it, is, it is where uh, Esau is. He's supposed to go back to Esau and be with that land. Um, and he ends up going totally different. He goes to where? He goes to Shechem and not only pitches his tent, but for a hundred pieces of silver, he buys land there. So it sounds as if Jacob is going to settle in a different location than the land of his relatives. It sounds like Jacob wants to be close, but not too close. It sounds like Jacob wants to be within a day's journey or two days journey or whatever. He wants to get closer to his brother, but he doesn't want to infringe upon his brother. And he stays in the land of Shechem, which I understand uh, today has a lot of grazing land. It's an excellent place to have cattle and sheep. And so, I mean, it's a great place to be. But it is not what he'd originally thought of, which is going back to his brother. And as you think about it, maybe that's just the best way that the story ends, right? That, that he gets closer to his brother. He reconciles with his brother. Both brothers understand that they're now in charge of their own tribes. They're both wealthy of their own right. And, but now they're going to stay situated far apart from each other so that... They don't get in each other's face. Uh, they can love each other, but they're not a threat to each other. 
And that is that is a pretty good that's pretty good uh, outcome of the story. El Elohe Israel, El God Elohe the God of Israel, God the God of Israel, God who is the God of Israel, or God is the God of Israel. Maybe that God is the God of Israel. The verb doesn't always happen in the Hebrew language, so you have to add it when it makes sense. But God, God the God is the God of Israel. That's where he named this place. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. God is the God of Israel. And he bought land and he bought from silver and he arrived safely to the city of Shechem and now he's going to stay there for a little bit, it appears, because he's bought land. So I like this part of the story. I really do. I love stories and we'll get into this um, later on. Uh, I love stories of grace, and it appears to be in uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that in each one of these stories, there's an incredible amount of grace that is shown. In Abraham, uh, it is shown because God shows him grace that he doesn't have to sacrifice Isaac. In Isaac, uh, God shows him grace by giving him sons and reconciling and, and showing uh, that he still is going to be a great nation. Here, Jacob is shown great grace by Esau. And then we'll find out later that one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, shows great grace. So uh, the whole idea of Genesis being all about the law and, you know, you've got to do all these things. I think Genesis, first and foremost, if you just track it along, it really does have a lot of grace because God is a God of grace. And Moses picks up on this when he writes the, the, book, of, um, the book of Genesis. Um, and God shows us grace that in yet while we were still sinners, he sent his son to reconcile us to him and to bring us into the kingdom. And that is the greatest grace of all, that God shows us his grace. And that is a great way to end today's Bible study and to go into Labor Day weekend. Labor Day weekend, of course, is a celebration of labor. Um, we have the two-day weekend because of labor. If you'll remember, there was a time in the 1800s where most people worked six days a week and they were off one day a week. Um, and that was, of course, that's probably been throughout most of the history of mankind. Of course, when it was an agricultural society, you worked all the time, right? You might work all the time. You know, you'd spend a little bit of time, uh, maybe one day a week, uh, where, where you did spend time with God and rested, but it was definitely six days a week. And certainly from the har for harvest, you might work from sunrise to way past sundown in the harvest time to get things. And then maybe uh, in the planting season or where the things are not as much, you might not work as hard. You might, you know, only work two or three, you know, hours a day or whatever. I mean, life was different. But once we came into the industrial age and people started working in industry, we moved from an agri agrarian society to an industrial society, then we had to put rules around how hard people could work because when you're an agrarian society, God dictates how hard you work because it's, it's when you're planting and you're harvesting and all those things when you work hard and when you're not doing those things, you don't work as hard. But when you're an industrial society, uh, you, you, could, you could work 24 hours a day. You, know, you could keep those factories working all the time to maximize your profits. And so at some level, somebody had to put some rules and limitations on it so that big in industry didn't take advantage of big labor. 
And uh, so that's when labor unions were created and all sorts of things, which we all benefit from. And that's what Labor Day is about. It's a celebration of when we came into the industrial society that we came to an agreement that the laborer is important also. And we had to put rules around laborers. And of course, the whole idea of working five days and having a two day work week, you know, five day work week, two days off, all is a product of labor. And I think it's interesting um, that we're now moving into what they call the gig economy or the, the, um, the internet economy. It's called the gig economy, Uber, Lyft, uh, all these things where we're staying connected because we have cell phones and we have computers and we, you know, we're interconnected with each other so incredibly well that the work week really is 24 seven. I mean, it there is, there are companies out there where the employer and the employee and managers and all that are talking to their employees 24 seven, which, uh, doesn't work in the industrial economy because we put stringent rules about how we should communicate. Um, but the world happens too fast. We can't wait. There are in the gig economy, you have to talk a lot quicker than just waiting till eight o'clock in the next morning. Uh, sometimes decisions have to be made right there and then on the spot. And you say, well, why can't it wait? It's because your competition has learned how to do this. And if you want to learn how to survive in the gig economy, you have to be as fast as the competition, which means that you've got to have communications 24 seven. Well, what does that mean to have a day of rest or to have time for yourself? Uh, and, and how do, how do people who are on wages, how do they record that time? I mean, it's just a very complicated deal. And the gig economy hasn't quite figured it out yet, um, but they will over the next 10 years. I, you will see incredible fights and battles on how this gig economy resets the clock and how we hire people. Because all of our employment laws are written for the industrial society. And we don't live in an industrial society anymore. We live in the gig society. And the gig society needs a whole different set of rules and laws that have not been written yet uh, because the old laws just don't work and they're, they're, they're actually horrible <laughs> for the gig economy. The old industrial rules don't work for the gig economy and yet they're there. And so it's gonna cause all sorts of political battles and all sorts of things. So anyway, that's way too long. Sorry about that. but. Uh, celebrate Labor Day weekend. It's an awesome time to be together and to enjoy life and go out and enjoy God's creation. And uh, we'll just quickly pray. God, thanks for today. Thanks for this week. Be with us over the weekend and fill us with your grace and your love. Uh, until we meet again, keep us uh, ever with you. In Jesus' name, amen.